Let's go to Nehemiah. We're actually going to be covering chapters 3 and 4 today together. I only got Daniel to read just a specific part in Nehemiah chapter 4, just so that you could see at least the, the middle of the story, if you will. I want to remember or to remind you, the Bible teaches us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, I think it is, the Bible teaches us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And when he said this, the New Testament wasn't written, okay? So when he said all Scripture is breathed out, he was talking to the New Testament church about the Old Testament Scriptures, okay? And so the Old Testament Scriptures were breathed out by God and they are profitable. What does profitable mean? It, it benefits you, right? And so the Old Testament Scriptures are very important for us. They are profitable. And notice what they're profitable for. They're for our teaching. So as we go through Ezra, Nehemiah, or any other Old Testament Scripture, we're looking for lessons to be taught. We're looking for things that we can learn. We're looking for examples that we can follow or examples that we can avoid. And so our job as we go through this is to simply draw out of the Scriptures the teaching that is there, and we'll see what for here in a minute, for reproof, or in other words, for just reassurance in, in, in our salvation and who we are and who God has called us to be, for correction. As Christians, the Old Testament Scriptures are profitable because we need correction in our life. We need things to actually show us that we need to change this and change this, and we need to put this off and put that on. And so we look in the Old Testament Scriptures for correction. And finally, for training in righteousness. We're looking so that we can get training, so that we can continue to grow in righteousness. And we want all of these things. We want teaching, we want examples, we want training, so that the man of God or woman of God, whichever the case may be, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now that's important because I want you to understand when you're reading the Old Testament, you're not just reading stories and you're not just memorizing a story and you're not just seeing a, um, uh, just a single example like maybe David conquering Goliath and uh, the, the small man faced his giant. And it's not just one little lesson we're trying to found, find in these Scriptures. We want examples. We want training. We want to draw out of these Scriptures so that we can be trained and be complete and that we can be equipped for every good work. So, as you've seen already in the past few weeks, we saw in Nehemiah chapter 1, we saw examples of specific, persistent prayer and how God honored that prayer and how Nehemiah continued to come and pray day and night for somewhere around four to five months. He did not cease praying. And even when it was time to stand and face his uh, obstacle, if you will. And he was, had every reason to be scared for his life. He didn't stand down. He prayed again. He kept praying. And he trusted God and God honored that. And we learn a great example from that about our own prayer life and how to be more specific in our prayer life and how to persistently pray to God for the things that are on our hearts. And then last week, we saw how powerful our stories can be in Nehemiah. 
We saw that Nehemiah's story of what God had done for him encouraged the downtrodden and the downcast to rise up and get back to the work because they had stopped working. And so we see that there are always examples for us to be able to learn from or there are lessons for us to be able to, uh, to learn to avoid, to not do these things. But I want you to notice that as we get into chapter 3 and chapter 4 this week, the work on God's kingdom is not finished still. Now we've made great efforts, right? Remember when we started in Ezra, God called His group of people back and they came back with um, the prince or the king of, of Jerusalem that would have been. Uh, they called them out of uh, Persian captivity and they come back and the first thing they do is they build the temple. They build the temple so that they can dwell with God, so that they can worship God. And then the next thing, Ezra comes in and he has to restructure the people. He has to rebuild the people. And so he teaches them the law of God and he gets sin out of their lives and he leads them in the, the paths and the ways of God. And those are great efforts. But the kingdom of God still lies in ruins as we're going to see as we read through this today. And I want you to think about that spiritually today as we go through it. In the same manner, you and I have made great efforts and great strides in building the kingdom of God in our lives. We have uh, been called out of our slavery and out of our darkness into the kingdom of God. And here we are in the, in the place where we dwell with God and we're building the temple of God and we're teaching the ways of God. And yet... If you look around, how many of you can see that in your own life, the kingdom of God still lies in ruins in so many ways? And there's still a lot of work to be done. We are still so far away from the kingdom being what it is supposed to be. And we know that it's never going to be what it actually is supposed to be until the day that we are perfected and we enter into it with Him. But even still, we are called to start the work and stay with the work today. And one of the enemy's primary goals in your life is just simply to stop the work. Now let me tell you something. If he could destroy you, he would do that. But if he can't destroy you, because if you belong to God, you can't be destroyed. But if He can't destroy you, what He will try to do is stop the work. If He can just get you to lay down and quit, if He can just get you to stop building the kingdom of God in your life, He will settle for that and that will be just fine. And let me show you in Nehemiah chapter 4 real quick where we see that in verse 11. Um, I want to show you just this quick little verse here before we get into the rest of the outline. Verse 11 it says, and our enemies said, they will not know, or actually start back in verse 10. Start back in verse 10. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. People were working hard, wasn't they? I mean, they were so hard at it. But how many of you know you work so hard, but the burden is so, so tough sometimes? Sometimes it looks like an impossible task in your life, right? You ever look at your life and look at the way you live and think, man, am I ever actually going to be a Christian? <laughs> I mean, you ever look at your life and go, man, I am in 
such a mess. I mean, how in the world does God keep working with me? How in the world does God keep trying? And so the strength of those who bear the burdens was failing. And notice what they said. There is too much rubble. Too much rubble. Man, I felt that when I read that. I felt that with everything in me. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild this wall. And then notice where the enemy steps up at this point. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and do what? Kill them. But if they can't kill them, notice what? And to do what? Stop the work. I got two goals is what the enemy says. First off, I'm going to do everything I can to completely destroy you. I want to tear you down to the point that you feel like there's absolutely no hope. This is too much. The rubble is too much. We will never be able to finish this project, so we might as well just stop right now. But if I can't destroy you, if your faith is genuine and it stays strong, at least I can discourage you enough that I can stop the work. If I can stop you from building the kingdom of God, the enemy says, I'll be completely satisfied with that. And how many of you can say this morning that there have been times in your Christian life where he has been successful in doing that? We're going to see that this is what's going back and forth in these, in these people this morning in Nehemiah chapter 3 and Nehemiah chapter 4. The work looked so overwhelming. It, it, the burden got so uh, difficult to bear that basically the people began to feel like it was impossible to do this work. They got discouraged and some of them, I believe, actually even quit. But by the grace of God, we're going to see that People called them back and encouraged them back and they got back in the work. And so what we're going to see this morning is simply this. We cannot build the kingdom of God by ourselves. You ever, um, um, I know we've heard this example many times, but you ever been watching the National Geographic channel and you see the, the herd of buffalo or whatever out there and you see the one little, only the lonely, it's out here by the side? Which one is the lion going after? Well, all he has to be able to do is get you off by yourself and just discourage you. And he has everything he needs at that point to be able to stop you from doing the work and even destroy you possibly. We need others in our lives in order to continue the work. But we need people who understand the goal, who understand what it is that we're trying to accomplish here. And we need people who understand that they have a mind to the work. That we're not just here to fill these seats on Sunday morning or fill a classroom seats. We're here because there is a work to be done in my life and I need this work to continue. I need this work to be completed. And when we have people that have that same mind and we all get on this same page, we're going to learn that this work can be completed and we can continue to build the kingdom of God. I titled this message, Lessons from Building a Wall. Lessons from Building a Wall. As I go through this, I simply want to draw out of here teaching, training, lessons that you and I can learn so that in our building process, in the work of building the kingdom of God, 
we can continue with it and we know the tactics of the enemy, we know exactly how he comes after us, and we know the things it takes to draw people back in or maybe even to be able to help ourselves get back up one day. Because I'm telling you, I'm just telling you, this old enemy is slick. He's been doing this a long time and he's only gotten better at it. And I'm telling you, I don't care how long you have been in this faith, he can tempt you to quit. Just this week, just this week, right in this old boy's life right here, I was this close to just wanting to just quit. It's just easier to just quit. It ain't the burden of the church. It ain't, it's just the enemy and what he does. And I'm telling you, I've been in this thing a long time. And I don't care how long you've been in it, there will come a time in your life again that this enemy will come this close to making you quit, to making you stop the work. And so I'm praying this morning that you pay real close attention to the lessons that we draw out of this because he ain't changed much. His tactics are very much the same today. He's only got better at them. All right? So let's look at lessons from building a wall. On your outline, if you got one, you notice my first point in the outline is that everybody has a share in the work. Everybody has a part to play. And I'm not just talking about a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or a song leader or a musician or a Sunday school director or a nursery worker. Yes, those are parts. And yes, that's what helps us to be able to do the work on Sunday morning. But I'm talking about the work of ministering one to another and helping each other build the work of God in our lives. I'm talking about the work of just serving one another. I'm talking about the work of just loving one another. I'm talking about the work of being humble toward one another and forgiving one another. And I'm talking about the work of praying for one another. I'm talking about the work that actually accomplishes building in our lives. I'm not just talking about coming to church and playing a part for one day a week. Or maybe two days a week. I'm talking about helping each other build the kingdom of God around all of our lives so that we all have protection, so that we're all continuing to grow. In chapter 3, let me show you where I drew that out at. First off, it's the whole of chapter 3, so I'm just going to pick out just particular things. The first thing I want you to notice is that in verse 1, we start out with the high priest and his brothers, the other priests rose up and they built the sheep gate and then it talks about how far they built on the wall. And so the first thing we see is that the priests all rise up. It didn't matter if it's the high priest. It don't matter if it's the senior pastor. It don't matter if it's the Sunday school teachers. It didn't matter what role they played. All the servants in the house of God got up and said, there's a work to be done and they got to the work. All right? And then I want you to notice how many times it says, look at verse 2, how many times it says, and next to Him, or after Him. You're going to see that through the entirety of chapter 3. In other words, the point that chapter 3 is trying to make is that no matter what role these people played 
in the lives of the community or in the lives of the church, no matter whether they were peasants or whether they were kings, whether they were governors or whether they were mayors or whether they were policemen, it didn't matter what it was. Every one of them understood we have a part to play in building this. And every time it'll say, and after them, these people built this part. And after them, these people built this part. And then next to them, these people. And the entirety of chapter 3 is making that point. Let me show you some of the people that it was. Look with me at verse 8 to see some of the people that we had. So we had high priest, we had priest. And then in verse 8, next to them, Uziel, the son of Hurai, and what occupation were these people? Goldsmiths repaired. So here we got jewelry makers. Here we got people that take gold and they make things out of gold and they step up. They may be jewelry makers on the side, but there's a work for them to do in the kingdom of God. And they come in the kingdom of God and they get to the work in some way or another. And then notice what it says in the same verse. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the what? Perfumers. (laughs) So here we got high priests, we got priests, we got goldsmiths, we got perfumers. All right, now keep going with me. Go with me to um, the end of verse 9. And we got the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem. We got the ruler of half of the district in them that's building. And then in verse 12, next to him, Shalom, the son of Halash, ruler of the other half of the district, repaired he and his who? (laughs) This is important, guys. God put this in His book for you and I to look in here and draw out of this what's there. And let me tell you what lesson is there. It did not matter what they did or what sex they were or what occupation they had. Every single person in the kingdom of God had a part to play in building the kingdom of God. And they looked for ways to fulfill that part no matter what status they had in this world. And then we could keep on going, but notice in verse 15, And Shalom, the son of Calhoes, or Calhoza, I'm just just making these up as I go. Y'all know that, right? But anyway, this old dude, he was a ruler of the district of Mizpah, and he repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it, he covered it, he set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and so the point is, we need people for all types of work in here. There are some people that set doors. There are some people that install bolts. There are some people that install bars. There are some people that put wood on the wall. There are some people that build stones for the wall. No matter what it is, there was a part for someone to play. Not for someone. There was a part for everyone to play in this, no matter where they come from or who they were. I'll skip down for sake of time. Look down with me at verse 31. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the mustard gate and to the upper chamber of the corner and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. So again, what is the point that God is trying to get us to draw out of here? 
If you're not doing some kind of work on the kingdom of God, if you're not looking for ways to minister to somebody hurting around you, if you're not looking for people to pray for, if you're not um, looking for people to study the Word with so that we can grow in it, if you're not looking for ways to serve others in any capacity that you can find uh, so that you can actually practice long-suffering and gentleness and, and the fruits of the Spirit, if you're not actually doing that, then you're missing a big part of what God is trying to do here in this building. Everybody has a part. And I know we beat that horse to death in the churches. But I want to help you understand that it is so important that you learn it. And it's so important that you understand it and that you do something with it. In Romans chapter 12, verse 4-8, through 8, we'll see that the work today requires the same thing. We, we need people in the church that are able to, to continue the work, like for instance this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. We, though many, are one body in Christ, one kingdom, one temple, one building. And we are individually members one of another. We're all connected together in this work, in this body of Jesus Christ. So, with that truth being known, having gifts that differ according to the grace that was given to us, some were goldsmiths, some were women, some were men, some were merchants, some were priests, some were high priests, some were on and on and on, rulers and whatnot. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And he names out just a few of them. If prophecy is your gift, and I've told you before, what is prophecy? Prophecy is speaking the inspired Word of God. Today, we have the Word of God in its entirety right here. And you and I as pastors and teachers or even just people that are trying to encourage one another, our job is to take the Word of God that He inspires in our hearts and we speak it to somebody else. And we say, thus says the Lord. Just what I'm doing this morning. I read these passages and now I come to you and I say to you guys, this is what the Lord says. And that, my friends, is prophecy in its fullest. And so, if prophecy is a gift, then do it in proportion to your faith. In other words, you may not be able to prophesy like I prophesy. Does that mean that your prophecy is any less important? Absolutely not. If God has inspired something on your heart to speak to the people of God, you still have a part to play in that. God didn't just inspire your heart for, for, for something just for you. It's for somebody else that needs it as well. If service is your gift, we never think about service being a gift, do we? Service is a great gift. Because remember what Jesus said when He came here? He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's why He came. He came to demonstrate to you what it looks like when we love one another the way that God loves us. And one of your most important tasks in building the kingdom of God is simply serving one another. Simply finding ways to just minister to each other. 
And then he says, if it is in service, then do it in your serving. If your gift is in teaching, then, then make sure you do it in your teaching. And we could go on, we'll, we will for just a few, the one who exhorts. Exhortation is a gift. That word exhort means to make an urgent appeal, such as telling the troops to hold the line. I love that, that concept. I picture a battle in my head and I picture these soldiers that they're beating down the enemy, but all of a sudden the enemy is bearing down on them. And man, they're beginning to retreat. The enemy has gotten so tough and it's gotten so burdensome that they're feeling defeated and they're beginning to run. But then somebody stands with a flag and charges and yells, Hold the line! And all the soldiers' strength wells back up and they come back together and they charge back at the enemy. They're willing to give it all. And this is what we need in the faith as people in the kingdom of God that understand exhortation is such a gift. Listen, I know how it is. We see people struggling and because we can't do anything about it, we're tempted to just kind of hide back away from it. Right? I mean, I can't fix it. I don't know what to do. I feel so helpless. And so basically we just kind of sit back and watch each other struggle. Come on, somebody. We just sit back and we watch each other struggling. Yeah, we may be at home praying for them. But you know, that person probably needs to hear you pray for them. That person probably needs just somebody to remind them that, brother, we ain't hopeless. Sister, we ain't defeated. No, I, I know it's tough. I know it's hard. But we got to keep fighting the good fight of faith. One day if we fight the good fight, if we finish the race, one day if we keep the faith, there's a crown laid up for us. One day the sufferings of this world will not even be worthy of being in comparison of the glory that God has prepared for us. We need people in our lives that are exhorting. And so the one that exhorts, do it in his exhortation. The one who contributes. You know, there are, there are people that need contributions. Y'all know that? There are times in people's life when we just need a little help. And so here we have people that are able, that have the gift. You don't even think of it that way. See, you think that you're just well off because God, God gave you a good job and I'm able to get up in the morning and I go to work and I work hard and I have what I have because I, 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 I. You want to know the only difference between I and you? The grace of God. That's it. That's it. God, why did God bless me the way He blessed me? I have no idea because I tell you one thing, I don't deserve it. He ought to strip me of all of it. That's what He ought to do. I don't deserve any of it. But yet He says here that if you've been gifted to be able to be one that can contribute, to do it how? In generosity. Have a heart that understands, God, the only reason I have anything is because You gave me everything. And so based on that, if I can help somebody else, let me do it. Let me do it. But see, instead, we're the kind of people that we don't see that as a work in the kingdom of God. We don't see that as a way to build the kingdom and to encourage people and to help people along and to love our neighbor. We don't see that. And instead, we look at it and go, man, I've worked too hard for this. And I'm going to keep my wallet in my back pocket. So why don't you get up and go to work and work as hard as I do and then you can provide for yourself. Somebody ought to say amen. amen. 
Because that's the way we think. That's the way we feel. But you need to understand that your contributions are a gift. Your ability to be able to contribute is a gift. And he says here, if you have that gift, do it in generosity. If you're one who has the gift to lead, then do it with zeal. Do it with zeal in your heart. If you're one that does acts of mercy... See, we don't see acts of mercy as ministering in the, in the kingdom of God and work to be done. Listen, the work in the kingdom of God ain't just about being a pastor, a teacher, or a singer. It's about so many other ways that we minister to one another. And we find ways to show acts of mercy to each other and to do it with cheerfulness. And again, we could go to other scriptures and look at this. The point is that everybody has a share in the work. Everybody. And you need to be looking for any opportunity you can, not just to teach, not just to preach, not just to sing, but to be generous, to exhort somebody, to pray for somebody, to show an act of mercy to somebody, to contribute to somebody, to do, to do something that actually demonstrates the same kind of mercy and grace that God has shown toward you. And now you in turn, you remember what Jesus said? Freely you have received, so freely what? Freely you received it. And so now you freely give it. And I'm not talking about offering place. And don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. We, we, from this church, you are able to help many. Because you contribute to the, to the... And we don't pass offering place around here. And I thank God for that now. I really do. I thank God for that. Not because we don't use money. Not because God don't use it. But because that's not the center of our focus. Not even close. Uh, matter of fact, I don't know when the last time you ever heard me say anything about giving to an offering plate was. I want you to understand, though, that there ought to be in our hearts, whether it's in the offering plate or whether it's to each other, there ought to be in our hearts a desire to just find ways to minister to one another. And that's just one way of many that we see that. But everybody has a share and there's a way for you to be able to do that. I love, I love seeing, I can spend the next few weeks on this. I love seeing like where Daniel and, and some of the men and some of the women, they, they see somebody that needs some help and man, they just start getting people together and they go and they, and they just help. And you don't know what kind of blessing that is to people. You know, just to show up. And just to help. And you know, I love to be able to see the church doing things like that. Amen. Because that's where you see the body of Christ. And I'm, I know everybody can't do that. I understand that. But that's, that's just one of many ways that we can help to love one another and build each other and exhort one another and contribute to each other. There's just so many ways for you to build the kingdom of God in here. And if you're not finding one, if you're not looking for one, can, can I tell you that partially the work has stopped in your life? Partially the work has stopped. And maybe that's something you need to look at this morning. Next thing. Humility and unity are essential to the work. Look at Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 5. Look what we draw out of verse 5 here. Beautiful thing. Or actually ugly. And next to them... The Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Man, I read that and that was tough. What's lacking here? Humility and unity. 
There is no mind for the work here. There is no goal to be accomplished. They're nobles. In other words, we are too good for this work. We're too good to serve in this area or in this area and this area. This is the reason why I've always tried to make it a practice in my life. And I'm not saying this as boastful. I'm saying this as an example. But I've always tried to make it a practice in my life to always be the least servant in the room. I don't care whether it's out there serving food and, and, and we're, we're, we're waiting until the last one goes through. I like to see the, the people preparing the food eat. I like the people serving the drinks to be able to eat. I always like to try my best to make it a habit to be the least servant in the room. If there is a place to be filled, if i got to go pick up a, a pitcher and walk around and start pouring tea glasses or whatever the case may be, I'm just looking for a way that I can be the least servant in the room. And this is the kind of heart that I need to have because if I'm not careful, I can become a noble. If I'm not careful, I can be one that's always self-centered and is always thinking about me and is always inward focused. And every one of us are susceptible to that. And so it would be wise for us to understand that humility and unity are essential to the work of God. You have to understand that there is a bigger thing going on here than just you, your time, your efforts, your money, you, 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 you. There is so much more to this than you. And humility and unity are something you need to try to keep at the bottom of your heart so that it is always there for, to keep you from rising up to a place of nobility. You always understand that God... I don't know how many of you feel this way, but I really do feel this way. I am the least deserving of anyone in here to be in God's kingdom. <laughs> the least deserving. I belong at the bottom. That's where I belong. And I'm okay with that because I'm just happy to be at the bottom. <laughs> I'm just happy to be in the kingdom. And so I like staying there at the bottom. And this is what Jesus taught us to be able to do. Paul taught us as well in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. Notice what he told them about maintaining unity in the faith. And notice what he told them about walking this worthy walk, this calling that they've been called to. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Alright, what does that look like, Paul? The very first at the list is what? With all humility. That's what it means to walk worthy of the call to which you've been called. First off, you understand, I do not deserve to even be included in this covenant promise of God. At all. And we do it with all humility. And we do it in this kingdom with gentleness with one another. With patience with one another. We do it with long-suffering with one another, and we do it while being eager. What does it mean to be eager? Man, you're going after it, ain't you? Eager. And we do it being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why, Paul? Because there is one body. 
church. There is one Spirit. Listen, you think you can go off and do your own thing somewhere else? Can I tell you something? There ain't but one Spirit. There ain't but one body. And then he says, And you were all called to one hope that belongs to your call. You all got the same Spirit, the same body, the same hope. You all have the same Lord. You have the same faith. You went through the same baptism. You have the same God. You have the same Father. And He is over all. He is through all. And He is in you all. So here we have this oneness, right? But then Paul don't stop there. He says, but, I love this right here, but grace was given to what? Each one. So yes, we're one. Yes, there's unity. Yes, there has to be humility, gentleness, long-suffering, kindness. But you need to understand, grace has also been given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, what do we do with that grace? Skip over with me to uh, Ephesians 4, same chapter, verse 12 and 13, Nathan. Here's why each one has been given a measure of Christ's gift. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And what is the work of the ministry? For building up the kingdom of God, the temple of God, the body of Christ, until... Here's the goal. Here's where we're achieving to. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How many of you have reached it yet? And so humility and unity are essential. And anybody that refuses to humble themselves from their sin and go to the work, anybody that refuses to humble themselves and unify for the purpose of achieving the goal, anybody who refuses to do that, can I just tell you, you're useless. These nobles, you don't hear nothing else about them. They don't have nothing to do with the work. They're not a part of the work. And ultimately, they're not a part of the people. But the ones that humble themselves and unify for the purpose of the work, the ones that no matter what status they are in life, they use their gifts for the goal, for the work, and they understand what we're trying to get to, they are the ones that actually enjoy the fruits of the kingdom of God. They're the ones that actually do the work. So humility and unity are essential to the work. The third thing, we're going to skip over to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The next thing we pull out of this is they all saw a common enemy to be fought. A common enemy. See, here's the problem with you and I. Most of the time, we're fighting each other because we don't understand the common enemy that is to be fought. And that is Satan and sin in our lives. The thing that keeps me from being the things that help you in the ministry and help the body of Christ are Satan and sin in my own life. And because we refuse to see the root of that and try to target the sin and try to help each other deal with the sin, 
Now again, I understand when you got nobles that refuse to admit their sin and refuse to, to humble themselves and refuse to deal with it, you know what? They're useless. And until they come to that place that they humble themselves, I'm sorry, there's not much that they can do. But for those that are humbling themselves and for those that will recognize their sin and for those that will recognize their place in the kingdom and serve one another, those are the kind of people that they're not too busy fighting with each other. They're more focused on fighting the common enemy that we have. Notice in chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, this is the enemy, he was angry. Listen, the, the enemy will lie pretty silent in your life until you start working for God. But the minute you start working on the kingdom of God, the enemy cannot stand it. Notice what it says next. Not only was he angry, but he was greatly what? Enraged. You want to enrage the enemy? You start working on the body of Christ. You want to enrage the enemy? You start loving one of your brothers and sisters in here. You want to enrage the enemy? You start working toward Christ's likeness until we reach a mature manhood and you start growing in Jesus and helping others grow in Jesus. You start helping others fight the sin in their life and get up and get back to work. And you watch what happens. I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm saying this as a fact. It's a fact. The enemy will become greatly enraged. And then keep reading with me in verse 2. It was at the end of verse 1. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? And then Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yeah, what are they building? If a fox were to run up on this, he would break down their stone wall. In other words, the Jews understood who their enemy was. And they understood that it wasn't each other. It was the ones that was trying to get them to stop the work. And so they did not have a mind to fight each other. They had a mind to fight their enemy. And how do they fight their enemy? They get to the work. That's what makes the enemy mad. That's what upsets the enemy. You want to fight him? You want to charge hell with a water pistol? Get to work. Get to work on the kingdom of God. Get to work on, on Christ's likeness in your life. Get to work on growing and building and, and, and maintaining this kingdom that God is building here. You do that, you'll be fighting the enemy. They saw the common enemy. I want you to notice some of the things that the enemy tries to do here. Notice what he said to them in verse 2 again. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria. That's important. He's saying it in the open, right? Yelling it out. And here's what he's saying to them. What are these feeble Jews doing? You ever heard the, the enemy yell in your ear? What are you even trying to do? You weakling. You weakling. All you ever do is quit. All you ever do is mess up. What are you even trying to do? Why don't you just quit right now because it's hopeless. You're never going to be able to finish this work. You're never going to achieve the goal. You will never get there. And so what are you even trying to do, you feeble Christian? You hear that? 
Notice what he says next. Will they restore it for themselves? In other words, do you not understand that, that this is too much work for you? Do you not understand that you are too far gone? Do you not understand that you are too great a sinner? Do you not understand that God will never accept your work? This is what the enemy continues to say. And then look what he says next. Will they, will they sacrifice? Will you really give anything to God? Is there anything you really have to give to God? I mean, what, do you, what could you possibly offer God? And then notice what he says next. Will they finish it up in a day? In other words, it's going to take too long. This journey is too long. Have you ever looked at where you are in life and how far away you are and you thought, Oh Lord, we've got so far to go and it's so far away. It's going to take so long. I mean, I can keep up a good fight for a little while. But how many of you know after a while I get out of breath? I get wore down. And here the enemy reminds you of that. And he says, listen, it's going to take more than a day to do this. Do you got more than a day in you? And then notice, he goes on. I love the last one here. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? You are too far gone. All this is is a heap of rubbish. There is nothing that you can do with this. It is impossible. You cannot ever reach the maturity of the man of Christ. You can never grow this thing together. This church will never be anything that God will ever be pleased with. It is too much of a rubbish. As a matter of fact, he finishes up and he says, and the burned ones at that. You got people and stones in here that are so burned they've about turned to ash. And you think you're going to build with that? And here the enemy is saying this. But notice what they do next in verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. And let me tell you something, he's going to do that one day. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Why does he say that? Because you're the builders but at the end of the day God is the architect and God is the one that has gave you the gifts and God is the one that has put every piece together so that it will be built exactly the way that He wants it to do it. So at the end of the day when the enemy says all that to you He's really saying it to God. In other words, God, you can't build your kingdom out of this mess. And we need to come back to God with faith to understand God. Turn His guilt back around on His head. You send Him into captivity because at the end of the day you told us to build this thing and we're going to build it. And you know what? Yeah, maybe right now it looks like if a fox were to run up on it it would just tear it down. And any of you ever look at the building in your life and the building in the church and you look around and you go, man, yeah, if a fox ran up on it it just tear it down. And all these things you look at and it feels true. But at the end of the day we need to understand that this enemy is going to be defeated. And we need to keep our focus on fighting Him and doing the work and not fighting each other. Because if He can get you fighting each other and keep your eyes off of Him, He can stop the work.
Next thing. They had a common mind to work towards the same goal. Look at uh, verse 6. So we built the wall. I love that. The enemy's been yelling all these things. Man, he's been jeering at them. He's been trying to shut them down. But they prayed to God and they built the wall. So we built the wall. And then look what he says next. And the wall was joined together to half its height. In other words, we may not be completed yet, but you know what? We're off to a pretty decent start. we got a long ways to go. But God is working. And we see the evidence of God working. And so we see here in verse 6 that they had a common mind to work towards the goal. And notice how it was joined to half its height at the end of verse 6. For the people had what? So in other words, the people didn't have a mind to fight. The people had a mind to work. And the only way that the wall don't get built, the only way the kingdom don't get built, is if you don't have a mind of our common enemy and you don't have a mind to work. If you have a mind to work, then every time you get down, you're going to realize the wall ain't getting built. The kingdom's not getting built as long as I'm laying here. As long as I'm quitting, as long as I'm stopping, nothing is getting accomplished. As long as I'm fighting with my brothers and sisters and I'm not putting on humility and gentleness and long-suffering and I'm not practicing loving each other and contributing in acts of service and if I'm not doing the work, nothing is getting done. And so I can either have a mind to fight or I can have a mind to work. And I can get back to the work. And so they have a common mind to work towards the same goal. And this needs to be your mind's focus as well. You know, you need to ask yourself the question, are you tired yet? I'm not tired like in, I'm just tired. I mean, are you tired, are you sick and tired of sin in your life yet? Are you sick and tired of the devil stopping you from the work? Are you sick and tired of hearing his voice in your head? telling you that it'll never be enough, that this is too much ruins, that it's too long, I don't have the strength. Are you sick and tired yet? Because the moment you get sick and tired of this, you're going to get a mind to get back to the work. And they did. I love that, verse 6. So we built the wall. You know what that could have said? So we believed Him and quit. That's not what it said. So we built the wall. We kept building. We got back to it. They had a mind to work. Number five, they prayed together and they looked out for each other. Look at verses 8 and 9. or Actually, we'll just start in verse 7 and go through 8 and 9. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls was going forward. Remember, they thought for sure this mocking, this um, jeering at them would have shut them down. Because normally this works, don't it? But it didn't. The enemy heard the work is going forward. Our tactics didn't work. And then notice what happened. When they heard that the breaches were beginning to be closed. In other words, they had little breaches in the wall at first. Now the enemy can't even find breaches anymore. Because the work is still going. And then he goes on and he says, When they heard that, they were very angry. Very angry. You know, this is important. Because the devil may leave you alone after a defeat for a moment. 
You remember the, the wilderness temptation when the devil was trying to tempt Jesus? Jesus conquered every one of them. And at the very end of it, you go back and read it. I think it's Matthew chapter 4, somewhere toward the end of it. Or middle of it, I'm sorry. When the devil had finally realized that he couldn't win, the Bible says that he left until a more opportune time. Now think about that. When you win a battle against Satan, he may leave for a time. And He will, because the Bible tells us, resist the devil and he will flee. But don't you ever think for one second that he ain't coming back. He ain't done. The minute that he sees the work continues, the minute that he sees that he has not slowed you down in the least, but you are charging forward with the mind to work, he's coming back. And then, notice, keep reading in verse 8. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. You know, if the devil can't get you with the mocking voice and the jeering, what he'll try next is confusion. I love that. Here, here lately, here lately, I've just been so confused, with, especially with ministering things. I just don't know what to do. Do I do this? Do I do that? How do I handle this? How do I handle that? I don't, and it's, it's been very difficult. And I've just been so confused. It's been frustrating. Frustrating. To the point that I just get angry and I get mad because I don't know what to do. And there are many times that the devil, he can shut you down if he can just confuse you. If he can just make it to where you don't know what to do. You don't know which way to turn. You don't know how to respond. You don't know what to do. And if he can just get some confusion in your head, he can shut you down. But notice the people's response to it in verse 9. Here's what they did. When you don't know what to do, you know what you do? I love this response right here. And we prayed to our God. You know, sometimes we just need to know that there are people that are praying with us. Sometimes we just need to know that there are people that are confused with us. So many times we don't have all the answers to how to respond to trials and temptations and struggles in our life and we don't know what's next. We don't know what to do. We, we're just so, we're so down and we're so confused. And what I've learned from this, this lesson I draw out of is, is that's the very time that we ought to just get together and just pray. Just pray. We ought to get together and notice they prayed together and then not only that, but they looked out for each other. Look what it says in verse 9 again. We prayed to our God and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In other words, this is where the church comes together and if I know, let's say Jesse back there is in a very dark struggle in his life. I have got to be better and you have got to be better and we have got to be better about not just sitting back and watching and going, all right, Jesse, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. Hey, if you need anything, Jesse, just call me. I mean, don't get me wrong. That's good. That's nice. And that's what we usually say. But I need to be better about understanding that Jesse needs somebody right now that's just praying with him. Jesse needs, not, not just me at home praying for Jesse, Jesse needs somebody right now praying with him. That's right. He needs to hear somebody calling his name and his situation before God. 
He needs to know that there's somebody that's watching his back. He needs to know that there's somebody that sees what the enemy is doing and that there's somebody that is standing with him, that's back to back with him, watching just to make sure that we're going to look out for him together. And this is what we miss so much in the church. I mean, we miss it so much. And I'm telling you, guys, we ought to be better at that. We ought to be looking at each other and trying to find ways that I can continue to pray with you and stand back to back with you until the trial has passed. We're bad about, we'll come together and we'll pray about it one time and then, sayonara. You're on your own. Hey, good luck. I hope I wish you the best. And we have got to get better at that. They prayed together, but again, they understood their common enemy, and so they knew what they were fighting. They had a mind to work. They knew what they were going for. And because of that, they knew how to respond. And I think that's what we're missing here. The people responded here by praying for one another and by looking out for each other. Number six. They exhorted and supported the burdened and the weak. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4. Skip down to verse 10. In Judah it was said, listen what was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. (laughs) You know, that happens. The strength of those who are currently bearing the burdens, eventually it begins failing. Listen, you're tough, but you ain't that tough. You're tough, but you ain't as tough as you think you are. And wait until the strength of bearing the burden has become a little more than you have. And it says here that when that happened, they said, there's just too much rubble. You ever ever had so much on you and been dealing with so much in your life that you just looked around and you you said, God and people, it's it's too much rubble. There, there, there is too much rubble around. I can't deal with the rubble. And then notice what he says next. <clears throat> By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And how many of you know that's a true statement? And then notice what the enemy does next because he sees another opportunity. And our enemy said, because this is when he comes in, Here we are, you're weak, you're off to yourself, you want to quit, you're discouraged, you're too far gone, there's too much rubble, it's impossible to complete this, it's just too much. And now here comes the enemy, and look what he says. He says, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So what do we do? At that time, the Jews who lived near them came, and them is the people that are burdened, the people that their strength is failing, the people that they want to quit, the people that probably at this point have quit the work. And I'm almost tempted to say Nehemiah was one of them. You know why? Because Nehemiah is writing this in first person, and he says, we. That's pretty important to me. Look what he says. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, and they said to us how many times? Ten times. You must what? (laughs) I love this. 
You know, it's so easy whenever we see each other down and we see each other stopping the work and we see each other um, just uh, discouraged because of the rubble. It's so easy for us to just sit back and just let them go. But we know what the enemy... These people knew what the enemy would do to them if they were out there by themselves. Do y'all see that? And so it took ten times. It didn't take one time. It took ten times. But ten times they kept coming back to them and they said, you got to come back. you got to get back. you got to get back. you got to return to us. You are not safe out there. The enemy has said, you ain't even going to know it until he has come in among you and he has destroyed you and stopped the work. you got to get back. And ten times... They come and they tell them that. And then in verse 13, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I station the people by their clans. In other words, I put them in the place with the most protection. You know, the weak and the, the burden, the ones whose strength is failing, they're the ones that need to be put in the place of the absolute protection. We need to surround them with all the armor and all the, the hardware that we have in order to keep the enemy from getting them because they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable. And so here he says, so we stationed them. I love that. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, with their spears, with their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people. Here's where exhortation comes in. I love this. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So they exhorted and they supported the weak and the burdened. And this is something you and I have got to remember too. And then Paul teaches us this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. I'm coming to a close. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. In other words, the ones that have stopped the work, you get out there, and I don't care if it takes ten times, you got to get back. you got to get back. you got to get back. You can't stay out there. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted the ones that their heart has literally fainted because of the rubble and because of the burden. Encourage them. Exhort them. How do I do it? Do like Nehemiah. Guys, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord and fight. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sisters. Fight for your family. Fight for the people of God. Fight for the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom worth fighting for. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. And be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. They exhorted and they supported the burden and the weak. In closing, we are the temple of the living God. We are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are the kingdom of God, the called out of slavery people of God, and we have a work to do to build the temple and the kingdom of God. And you need to understand that Satan's number one goal is to either destroy you or to stop the work. The only way you're going to defeat him is to understand that you have a part in the work somewhere, somehow. You have humility and unity is essential to the work. You have a common enemy to be fought and you need to keep your focus on the enemy and his tactics and what he does. 
You need to understand the goal, the common mind that we have to, to finish the work. You need to understand that we need praying with each other and looking out for each other, standing back to back with each other and encouraging and exhorting each other, especially those that are burdened and those that are weak. Those are the lessons to be drawn out of the building of the wall in Nehemiah chapter 3 and chapter 4. The question is, will you be trained in it? Because now the training, just because you have knowledge, don't mean that you're trained in it. The question is, will you be trained in it? Will you be corrected in it? Will you be reproved in it? Will you be complete man or woman of God, equipped for every good work? Or will you stop the work and will you believe the lies of Satan?